This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. I am going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, this weekend. You can get tickets to CameronEsposito.com slash tour today on the show, this show, Query. An awesome interview. This actually, like, this interview turned out, this one turned out great. This is a real good one. Jeff Hammerberg from GayRealEstate.com. I, like, loved this dude. I loved chatting with him. I hope you really enjoy this one. Yeah. have folks introduce themselves on the podcast would you introduce yourself sure go for it take it away take hey, it away my name is jeff hammerberg i'm the founder and president of gayrealestate.com so you or someone that works with you actually pitched me on being on the podcast and i was stoked to hear from you because i think so often on this show we talk to folks who are in the entertainment industry because that's just sort of the easiest people to get to are folks who have, you know, an awareness of podcasting. And one thing that's been really important to me is to make sure to talk about all the ways that queerness and LGBTQ identity touches our lives. And so this was something where I, when I heard from, from you, I was like, oh my, yeah, yes, I want to talk to this person because I want to know... Um, I want to know about your job and your life and 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 why you founded GayRealEstate.com and, and sort of what your experience is. So great job representing yeah, thank yourself. You. Thank you for making uh, me aware of the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you. I love what you're doing on the planet and <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm really thrilled <laughs> a, to be with you today. So thanks good, for the opportunity. Yeah. Th- what a good compliment. I love what you're doing on the planet is that's a good one. I'll, I'll take that one and put it in my pocket. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> so where, where are you from originally? Minnesota, Duluth, Minnesota. Wow. It's right on, the, right on the tip of Lake Superior, a few hours north of Minneapolis. At the time I grew up, it was a city of about 100,000 people. And, you know, it's still there today. It's kind of a tourist desti- destination for people in Minneapolis. They come up to Lake Superior and, you know, there's lots of good food and events and the lake and the aerial lift bridge and all of that kind of stuff. So it's great. Yeah, great, I, have a, beautiful I city. have a friend from there. The uh, stand-up comic Maria Bamford, I believe, is from Duluth. Oh, nice. And beautiful. I haven't met her. I'll have to, uh, we'll have to be introduced. Connect up. She's got some great jokes about where you're from. Oh, I'd love <laughs> to hear them. <laughs> so you grew up in, in Duluth and, and how long did you live in that area or where do you live now? You know, I grew, I, so I, I uh, left Duluth when I was 17 years old. I actually dropped out of high school, had a difficult relationship with my father, and I joined the Navy. And I did that the very last day of the old GI Bill, which was December 31st of 1976. I'm taking us back a ways. I'm revealing my age. <laughs> but the, I'm the, so... 
I'm so, yes, thank you for, yes, thank you for Perfect. revealing your age. This is important shit. Keep going, right. keep going, keep going. <laughs> so, so I, the, and the reason why I mentioned that is if you joined on or before December 31st of 76, you received a full ride through college when you got done serving. So today there are still some programs where you can contribute and then, you know, the branch of the military will contribute and you can still get some college benefits. But this was back in the days when you got a full ride. So that's why I, you know, that's why I joined. Left Duluth, flew to San Diego for boot camp, and I can remember the plane coming down in San Diego and I saw the palm trees and the beaches and the ocean and my heart just opened. I was like, I'm home. Wow. So, so I have so a- many follow-up questions for you on this. <laughs> um, here's the first one. I didn't really, so you dropped out of school, joined the Navy, and then we're going to get this free ride through college or, you know, it's not a free ride. You were going right. to do the work to earn the, um, the money. But um, did you have to then, did you have to have a college diploma or a GED to, did you end up enrolling in college? I did not have to have a GED to, to join the Navy at that time. And I don't, you, pro, you may have to today. I'm not really sure. And, and I, I was actually enrolled in the University of Minnesota Duluth already it. when I when I dropped out. My father was giving me all sorts of pressure, and you know, why are you going out on a Friday night? You should be studying, and all of that kind of stuff. We had this, you know, kind of strange relationship that lots of kids do with their parents. And I just had had enough. And I realized that it was such a struggle to try to find a job, even to put gas in my car at that point. My dad was paying for my classes, you know, that whole thing. So I just decided it was enough and just dropped out, surprised everyone and boom, out of town. So it was great. Wow. I also, I'm just, I'm just making some guesses here because you know, my folks, I've seen pictures of my, I was born in 81, so I wasn't a human yet right. on this planet um, in 76, <laughs> right. but right. I have seen folks of my, I've seen pictures of my folks during that. And so I know, I know it was the bicentennial, which was right. that big summer, um, July 4th, 200 years as a country, all that stuff. I just am wondering if there was a, I mean, I'm just guessing there was maybe like some sort of rah-rah patriotism going on, but what was what was the vibe like in the country in 76? Because there was also obviously, I don't even, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I literally don't even know where we were at in terms of Vietnam. Like, what was going on in the country when you joined? You know, I... From what I'm you can sure. remember. Right. I'm not even sure that I know much more than you do. I was a 17-year-old kid that was living in a city that was gray and cold and depressing. I was, you know, living under the thumb of my father being a tyrant. I was living in an economic situation at the time. People were leaving Duluth because of factories closing and the iron ore industry having a rough time. And, you know, there was one, I can remember one billboard that said, last person to leave Duluth, please turn out the lights. And so it was that whole atmosphere that I, and, and actually I saw, you know, I think I used to watch football with my dad or whatever. So I would see these commercials for the military and some of those were the Navy. And, 
you know, it's so funny because when I was 10, I almost drowned one time. So when I came home and told my mom I joined the Navy, I mean, she just about fell out of her chair. She's like, <laughs> you don't even like the water. What you? So. But the ships are big, mom. The ships right. are big. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I mean, it was just, I think it was a, it was a, a changing point in my life. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, I want to talk about that too, because I know from living in LA where I think you're talking about reporting for boot camp, you know, because I just was in San Diego last week for work. Right. And when you drive down, you pass the, um, like a Navy base that is, that is, it's right on the water. Right. And there's some deserty mountain stuff around. It's, Incredibly beautiful, and it, it feels very – I mean, it has that stark sort of undeveloped feeling that uh, a military base can have where it just – I don't know. It always kind of gives me goosebumps um, to drive past because I, I know what's going on there, which is that a lot of young people are um, taking on some pretty tough jobs. Sure. Um, but I, but it, that particular one – in San Diego, where I think you're talking about is, um, it's, it's beautiful. It's like a weird sort of natural beauty. Yeah. This, the, the boot camp for the Navy and the boot camp for the, the Marines, which is MCRD are both pretty much at the end of the runway in at the San Diego airport. Right. So they're right yes. in that general area. Exactly. And so, but I, but I can remember, you know, my drill sergeant pulling up in his forest green MG convertible with the top down and getting out in his crisp khakis and his aviator sunglasses and screaming at us. And I was like, man, I'm in love. You know what? <laughs> it's like a top gun version of military service. You know, exactly. there's a lot of beach volleyball. <laughs> Um, exactly. Wow. And, you know, of course, right across the fence were the Marines. So we didn't have it nearly as rough as they did. So oftentimes I'd look over there and be like, huh, glad I'm not a Marine. But, you know, it was great. Were you eventually deployed? You know, I did three Westpac. So when I uh, finished boot camp, I went to a navigator's school there in San Diego and served on the USS Enterprise in San Francisco for a year. And then at one point, they had a, I joined the Navy on the buddy system with a friend from Duluth. Now, we didn't have any sort of relationship. This was before I even recognized my, what my sexuality was. And um, so we went to boot camp together. We actually both got into the same A school, the Navigator A school. I went to San Francisco. He went to San Diego. I was on the USS Enterprise. He was on the Constellation. After a year up there, the Navy had a program where you could cross decks. You could find someone that had the same job as you, that had roughly the same rate as you, that had approximately the same amount of time left in service, and you could actually request to switch ships with them. So I found that person and then ended up back in San Diego uh, for my last three years on the USS Constellation. Wow. So dur during that time, I worked in the navigation department on the bridge uh, as a helmsman, uh, shooting the star stars, celestial navigation uh, at sunrise and sunset. 
um, keeping track of uh, the ship's position on the map and that sort of thing. So we did do two West Packs. You're gone nine months. And we always, you know, left San Diego through Hawaii via the Malacca Straits into the Indian Ocean. There was always drama in the Middle East, as there is today. So that's where we spent a majority of our time. Uh, at one point during my deployment, the closest I ever got to any sort of combat was, I don't know if you remember, in like 80, I think it was, we sent the Black Hawk helicopters into Iran to rest, rescue the hostages that were American hostages being held by Iran. Right. And as the helicopters flew through the desert, they were flying low and actually sand got into the rotors of the helicopters and a few of them crashed. So it was aborted, came back, tensions were high. We were actually back in Thailand and turned around, steamed all the way back through the Malacca Straits, hung out in the Indian Ocean in case there was, was any, you know, activity that we need, needed to be involved in or our fighter planes. And we were at sea for 120 days. It's the longest time during a peacetime period that a ship has remained at sea. So that was interesting as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 120. Well, first, I just want to thank you for your service. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I actually am. I mean, this is, it might surprise folks who are regular listeners to the podcast or people who just know me from, you know, I'm, I'm, I have really progressive views. And I think for some reason that has often been paired with, um, a criticism of the military that then is continued on to soldiers and those who serve. And sure. I just, you know, I'm, I'm much, I'm actually, for me, I, I really think that um, there's no, there's no way that, that it makes sense to me to be ignorant of the positioning that, that we have as a country in the world and who actually secures that for us. I mean, right. I can individually be a person who is for peace. And if I drive my car to work in the morning, then I also have to be aware of the folks who are putting their life on the line. Right. That makes it possible for me to do that. So I just, I think that especially as queer folks, it's really important to keep in mind all of the folks who are serving um, that are our family members. And I mean, I am like truly, I mean, I, I, uh, I am a, I'm the kind of, I cry at parades. I cry at the, <laughs> at our national anthem. Right, I'm like a right. true patriot in like a very, I think, unexpected way for a lot of folks that might know some other things about me. You know, yeah, but, me too. I yeah. mean, standing, standing up at a game, a high school football game, whatever it is, that national anthem, I have tears in my eyes. Yes. So. And I, and I, yeah. And I really like, f I really support the troops. It's like a thing that just is very, uh, very important to me. Yeah, um, thank you. And all yeah. of that being said, I mean, I'm sure I would guess that you and I are have very similar views on the endless war in the Middle East and yes. aggression and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm there with you. And I will say that, you know, 99 percent of the people that you see that are in the military have nothing to do with any of those decisions. They're just merely serving. That you just you just summed it up in a in a much more concise way than I did, which is that you know there's the folks making the decisions, and then there are the folks who are 
you know, doing this because of, you know, a strong love of the country or because they need a job or because they need free college or because they have a special skill. And I think that we, you know, it's very easy to forget about that, to forget about, especially for queer folks and folks who might be left-leaning, it's easy to forget that, you know, it's a lot of, it's a privileged position to be able to be critical of the military. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, and I'm happy to exert that privilege and, and carry on that criticism, but but also support the individuals who are, who are yeah, out there. Yeah, thanks for saying all of that. That's awesome. I love that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I really like, I believe it so much. Um, right. And 76 till, so you said at least three years. How, how, what was your total time in the Navy? How long so were you? I, it it was six years, six four years. years active and two years inactive. So I was discharged in March of 81. I actually went back to, Drove from San Diego. I had a car at that point. Drove through Colorado, where I had an older brother living, back to Minnesota. Started back at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And the economy then was as bad as it's ever been. In 81, the economy was horrible across the country, and it was terrible in Duluth. I mean, to the point I mentioned this earlier, I couldn't even find a job working at a gas station to keep gas in my truck while going to school. So I packed my brother, who was living in Denver, said, hey, why don't you think about coming to Denver? And I packed my car, and my dad actually drove with me out to Denver. I didn't have a job set up. I was Mm going to stay with my brother. And I ended up applying for a job as a security guard in a high-rise office tower downtown Denver. And at that point, uh, I called my mom and dad, told them, you know, got had this job interview, went really well. They weren't high. They weren't looking for anyone. But by the time I got back to my brothers, they had called and offered me a job. And I needed uh, a blazer, a blue blazer and gray slacks and a white shirt and a red tie and black shoes and this sort of stuff. And I can remember at that time, my mom gave me her Montgomery Ward's credit card number. <laughs> sure. And I went down to the Montgomery Wards on South Broadway and bought everything I needed, just gave them this paper with the number on, started my job. And I ended up actually moving up through that company for six years, working for another commercial developer for six years, leaving as the director of asset management for a large national commercial developer, you know, 12 years later. But there's one piece that I'll tell you a little bit. When I was working as that security guard a few years into the job or a couple years into the job, there I was a high-rise office building 38 stories. There's a two-story retail building next to it, and there's a glass roof that comes down from that retail building slanted and attaches to the high-rise. So this lobby of the building has this glass roof, and it's really beautiful. So one day it was raining really hard and the water was building up on that glass and it started leaking into the lobby. And the cleaning people there were there with their mops and I went out and grabbed a mop and I was mopping up. So little did I know at that very moment, the owner, one of the owners from Canada, the Love family, came through the lobby, went upstairs and his first question was, Who's the guy in the suit mopping up water in the lobby? And I was in management within a week and moved up the ladder from there. 
That's so, an amazing story. Yeah, I always tell people the harder you work, the luckier you'll get. Sure. That's you know? Ooh, that's a good one. I like <laughs> Jordan my <laughs> Jordan my engineer is nodding her head. Um I want to ask a couple questions then because so I know you said earlier that when you started your military service, you weren't aware of your sexuality. When did you right. become aware of your sexuality? It was interesting. I, I, I was raised in a born-again Christian family. My dad wasn't totally on board with that, but my mom actually found this little Bible church, and I think it was her. It, it was like a place where she could go that was safe away from my dad, and that he didn't mind that she went to. So it was a safety net for her. So I was raised as a born again Christian. So I, I was, you know, dealing with all this guilt and all of that sort of stuff. But as I was working in Denver, I uh, would date women and it was really convenient because I was a born again Christian. I didn't believe in premarital sex and I was kind of dating women that kind of felt the same way. So it was right. very handy, worked out really well. And at one point, I was dating this woman, and she said, hey, do you want to go to go out dancing Friday night? I'm like, sure. Okay, there's this place called Tracks I want to go to. And she's like, just so you know, there's some gay people there and blah, 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 but it's the best dance place. In this. And I went there, and it was kind of, it was like, um, you know, we walked through the door, and I was like, oh, my God. I mean, this this dance floor had, you know, 200 people on it, and many of the guys had their shirts off, and there were people all over. And it was like, this is amazing. So what happened after that, that was another one of those moments, like landing in San Diego, where right. I saw the beaches and trees, uh, you know, uh, something clicked in me. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And uh, I had no idea this was happening. So um, I ended up going back there alone once or twice. And then so at that point, I was, you know, in touch with my sexuality. And I had had a couple of experiences prior, just like, you know, teenage boy stuff and that sort of thing. So um, I actually fully came out when I was 30. And this month I'll be 61. So for half of my life, I was yeah. not aware of my sexuality and or living in the closet and dealing with all this Christian guilt type stuff. Right. I mean, I, I was raised really Catholic, so I can, you know, I can totally relate to um, the, the convenience of religious fervor telling you that you should not have sex with the, with uh, right. the person that you're dating. That is, right. that is convenient. Um, and I also, well, I'm curious when you were like, so then you're in the military and then you're a security guard. I mean, these are like, these are like butch jobs or whatever with a certain maybe patrolled masculinity. I don't know. I haven't been in the Navy. What were right. you getting messaging when you were in there a, when you were serving about, like, did you know folks that were sort of seeing each other on the down low? Like, was anything around you that you felt you know, an access so point to? Or was it like that club in Denver is your first time seeing this? Yeah, it's so funny because my husband laughs at me today even. And he's like, you're just so naive, Jeff. How can you possibly think? How do you see everything with these rose-colored glasses, A? And then how do you not recognize what's, you know, 
So, and I feel like I'm fairly intuitive and fairly aware and that sort of thing, but I was pretty clueless. I remember one time when I was in the Navy actually using the restroom and I thought a guy was like looking at me or whatever. So I can remember one or two instances like that. Like I said, I had a couple of, you know, uh, um, experiences. So it wasn't like that was totally, you know, like, what did you chalk that up to those experiences? Like if you didn't think that they, first of all, I just also have to say that you literally were like when I was in the Navy. And then as you said that, I realized that that is a village people song. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. Um, but, but, um, anyway, when you were having those experiences, what did you, what did you chalk that up to? Like as a young man, you're you're in high school or whatever. What did you think was going on? Well, it's a really good question because you know, I uh, there 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 was some mutual attraction with this unnamed person, and you know, sleepovers and wrestling and like the whole thing, and like nothing ever happened, nothing ever happened, nothing ever happened, and then suddenly one time we were uh, on the road together, slept overnight in a hotel, and he's like, all of a sudden he's like, I'm horny, I think I'm gonna, and I'm like, oh, right. Okay, well, maybe me too. So side by side, um, two separate beds, but just kind of, you know, took pleasure to ourselves. That was about it. And and I can remember sleeping that night and thinking, oh, my God, my life is over. What just happened? Uh, you know, this is like someone super close to me, da-da-da, all that kind of stuff. And then the next morning in the car, this person is like, I'm horny again and just like dropped his pants on the highway. And (laughs) it was just like, whoa. So I guess that didn't ruin my relationship. So that happened. And then keep in mind, like then nothing happened for a long time. And this was, so this was ours. That was probably like a, in the back of my mind, but you know, I had all of this, uh, uh, moral duty to live the life that I was, taught was uh, proper growing up, you know? So uh, a lot of that stuff, I think I just crammed down within me. And another time in San Diego, I can remember going downtown San Diego. We walked into this bar to have a beer and sat down at the bar. Nobody was in there really, a bartender and had a beer. And I was looking around and we were both looking around. They're like, there's like, posters of guys all over in this bar <laughs> like what the hell's going on and at that point we were both like oh my god this is a gay bar you know so i didn't realize that there was this i i knew my own feelings and i knew my you know uh my own convictions and all of that sort of stuff but i i was totally blind to the fact that there was this community, there was this underground, there was this activity going on probably all around me, not probably for sure it was. So, and then I, so I think, you know, my awareness was dampened by my convictions and just eventually it just got to be too much and the whole dating the women and, you know, the no sex thing and the, you know, so it was. Yeah, I I do know, actually. I mean, I can can really relate to a lot of that. I think denial is such a is such a powerful thing. And, and, and talking about our bodies and 
our hormones and the way that we are physically made right as if there's a right and wrong like a moral right and wrong i think right. for me as a as a kid it just really divorced me from being in my body a lot and then i think about myself and you know getting to realize that i was gay and getting to have thing you know experiences that made more like biological sense to me, more physical sense to me. And sometimes I think about the folks who were like raised right next to me that then turned out to be straight and how weird their experience must be because I got to step outside of that right matrix. You know, I got to have some experiences that helped me to see that it was really important to pay attention to how I felt. And right. for folks that had all of those same teachings, I just like, that actually makes me so sad sometimes if I think about it or like troubled, you know, because I, especially, right. you know, for women, but also for men, you know, that are raised with this Christian religious fervor that like, what? I mean, how are other people surviving you know, I, know. I, I mean, I, I feel like so grateful that this was my, that my journey was so extreme, such an extreme version of this. Right. I mean, it's just such a disservice. You know, I, we were just at a family reunion in Minnesota. My husband and I rented a home on the lake. So everybody came down there and all the Borgans, right? So before a meal, it's like, who wants to pray and dear heavenly father and thank you, Lord, and all of this kind of stuff. And so my sister's like, at one morning, she's like, who wants to pray? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I mean, and I'm like, you know, so I, so I had a conversation with some of my nieces and nephews. I'm like, listen, we now know from science that the earth is four to 5 billion years old. You know, we now know that, you know, 150 million years ago for a period of 50 to 150 or a hundred million years that, you know, reptiles roamed the earth. These were dinosaurs, you know. I mean, none of this creation, none of this story, not we, you know, we, if you've studied, I mean, you recognize that, you know, the Romans kind of invented heaven and hell to put like a, some moral boundaries on society that they felt like society was, you know, would behave better if they thought they might go to hell, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I don't have any problem with anyone thinking the way they want. I'm not trying to convert anyone else. And what, you know, the, the, what bothers me particularly with my family is they do believe that everyone should believe like them, you sure. know? So they believe they're the only ones going to heaven and that sort of stuff. So that always is like a raw edge to me. You know, I'm involved still with a spiritual organization. I, you know, I bless and honor all other faiths, all other religions, knowing everyone's on their perfect path. But I don't want anything crammed down my throat either. Yeah, and I, I also think that for young people, it, you know, it's important to separate getting to know yourself from just sort of like blind worship of an entity that tells you right. who you are. And that, that's, right. you know, that's really where, where I go with it is like, yes, spirituality, no uh, rules that tell me how, how I am, you know what I mean? I so it's, it's just, there's like a big difference there and prayer can even be amazing if it's not about shutting yourself off. 
Yeah, it's and, about it's about you know being affirmative and knowing that this higher power is within you. I mean, you have this ability. I mean, mm-hmm. we are all created. You know, if you believe in this universal power, we're all a part of that. It's not something outside of us. The gray bearded guy in the sky is gone, dead. Not <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> I love. I love this opportunity to talk to you because look at where we have gone with this conversation about gayrealestate.com. (laughs) (laughs) Am I I right? It's good. I love it. Yeah. So tell me about a little bit about the work that you do today. I mean, I know the last time, so in your life story, the last time you were talking about moving your way up, getting to, you know, management, being very high up in um, that company and and talk to me about bridging that to now and what you're doing today. So in 1990, I was the director of asset management for the Linpro company, a large national commercial developer. And we had four or five projects that we had developed in Denver. We fee managed Martin Marietta's world headquarters, which is in the foothills in Denver. We had some stuff around Centennial Airport, some office buildings. Liberty Mutual was an anchor tenant, that sort of thing. So once again, I keep coming back to these failing economies and the economy was horrible at that time. Uh, In 90, oil prices were high. Commercial investments were down. Everybody was uh, battening down the hatches. We ended up laying off about 150 people. There were there was a partner, the controller, uh, a director, and myself that were left in the company. They actually laid me off and gave me a year severance package. So downstairs was a Remax office, and I thought, hmm, all of those people are driving nice cars. They must be making money. <laughs> so at that point, I think I was you know, probably making 60 grand a year with some bonus money and stuff. So I went down there, and I talked to the broker who had been paying me his rent for the last five or six years. And I said, Paul, I'm thinking about getting into the real estate business, you know, becoming a realtor. And he said, well, the thing is, Jeff, he said, Remax is only experienced agents. We don't hire any new agents. And I'm like, oh, come on. You've, how long have you known me? And he said, okay, Jeff, let's do this. He said, if you get your real estate license, I'll bring you on. And then I'll meet with you and teach you the business, what you need to know. I like you. I want to. So I went out and got my real estate license, came back to Remax. I really didn't know at that point that you really didn't have to apply for a job to be a realtor. You can be a realtor wherever you want. You know, companies are always looking for you to come in and sell homes and share your commissions. <laughs> so I'm so the very first day I met with Paul at his desk and he said, Okay, Jeff, this is a lockbox, and I'm gonna teach you how to change the combo. So he opened it up and showed me, and he's like, Okay, so that's it for today. And <laughs> let let's meet tomorrow again. I'll, I'll try to meet with you for like an half hour every day, half hour, hour every day. I never saw him again. Wow. But what happened was I was put into this Remax office with about 40 agents and the average salary in that office was 
eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, and a few people making much more than that. So my first year in the business, I made a hundred thousand dollars selling homes with no training. And that's the other thing that I like to tell my nieces and nephews that you turn out like the people you hang around. And, you know, that's even true for us as adults today, right? Who are you hanging around? What kind of expectations have you set for yourself? And do the people around you mirror that? Are you going to, you know, you're, you're not going to outperform anyone that you're hanging around with typically. So I, I credit that. I mean, if I was put into a, uh, another real estate office down the street where the average agent was making 30 grand, I probably would have made 30 grand. Yeah, but so, it sounds like you have this sort of boldness built into you. I mean, you know, joining the Navy at 17 and then and then pitching yourself to, you know, the person who works downstairs and saying, you know, train me. I mean, do you have any how do you account for that in your do you send do you know that in your personality? Do you see that? I, I, I do know that. And, you know, so my belief is that <laughs> The road to sustained happiness is through disciplined behavior. Okay, if you look at any successful person, they have routines. And I recognize that, and I was introduced to that in the Navy. But even today, if you look at successful people, they're, you know, they're up at five running, and they're having a light breakfast, and they're grabbing their Starbucks, and they're doing this, doing that, whatever. So... These are the types of, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not willing to discipline yourself, then be happy with where you're at because nothing's probably going to change for you. So I've recognized that. The other piece of that, and I'll flip that for a minute, is the fact that I think a lot of my success is due to, and maybe this is true for others, the fact that I've worked my ass off in large part, I think subconsciously, to try to make up for the fact that I was gay. My I family, can't relate to that at all. I feel relaxed as a person every day because of my queerness. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right, right, These are jokes. Right. <laughs> So, I mean, right. <laughs> These are you, jokes. I feel like I have. A, I feel all, like so. I've arrived. I feel as if I have nothing to prove. No, yeah, I, uh, no I it's mean, a long-term process of right, right. I mean, and that's not so much true today, but but I think where I'm at today, my if looking back at my whole life, yes, I always wanted to. Yeah, Jeff is gay, but he's successful. Jeff is gay, but he's got a beautiful home. Jeff is gay, but he's got a you know he's driving a Bentley. Jeff is this. Jeff is you know that sort of stuff. So, and, and also the giving and being a good person and, but uncle Jeff, we love him and he does this and that. And so a lot of, you know, I can attribute a lot of that success, a lot of that drive, a lot of that discipline to that, you know, not so much anymore, but. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a question about that? Because I think sure. that that is when you say not so much anymore, because I, I relate to this so much, and I think that a lot of folks who are from marginalized communities do. It's like, you know, um, okay, I will make myself valuable to you. Okay, I will prove you wrong. You know, all that stuff. Right. And then at the end of the day, we have to work to accept ourselves and to maybe need that a little bit less. So right. it seems like 
what you're saying is that you've gotten to a place where you need that a little bit less. And some of that might be that you did have that success. But is there anything else that you could speak to about, you know, sort of relaxing that pressure on yourself? Because I, I think that's something really important to talk about for our community too. You know, it's, yeah, it's great to run the race, but it's also important to like yourself, you know, because yeah. what if you fail at the race? That's the thing right. about it. If you're if you're putting your value in achievement, which is something I can really relate to, what happens when you stumble? Right. And so what have you done about that? How do you how do you, you know, give yourself some permission on the off days, on the days where you don't sell something or on the days where something goes to shit? Yeah. So I think what, you know, it, and it's been a process for me and it continues to be a process. But, you know, one of the things that I've done is, you know, I've done a lot of work with a lot of spiritual work. I've done a lot of meditation work. I've done a lot of volunteering. I was, there's a, uh, religious organization called the Centers for Spiritual Living. It was started by Ernest Holmes, a new thought uh, guru, I'll call him, out of L.A. in the 50s. And these centers for spiritual living are around the country now. So there's, there's no Bibles, there's no hate, there's no judgment, that sort of thing. So I remember going there to the LGBTQ, they had an LGBTQ question and answer thing once, and I talk to Dr. Roger at the time, who was the spiritual leader at the church in Denver, which has about 12,000 family members and friends. So it's a large church. And I started asking him these questions that I had been taught as a kid. I, you know, these Bible verses that talk about, you know, man shall not lay with man, this and that, whatever. And Roger was really gentle and he was really, you know, open. And he said, Jeff, I mean, we all believe what we've been taught. So I want you to imagine just for a minute, just, just give yourself permission to imagine that there might be another way. Just, just a crack in that eggshell, just the tiniest possibility. You don't have to give up what you believe in, but just the tiniest possibility that there may be another way. And that opened up a door for me that I could then, you know, um, take in some of this teaching. I ended up getting licensed in that church as a practitioner. I spent 15 years there. I worked in um, death and dying hospital hospice home visitation programs. The last year that I volunteered, I assisted in 60 funerals you know, that sort of stuff. So you're working around people, you're opening your heart, you're opening your mind to people that are not in judgment of anyone in our community. In fact, they're in full support of it. So the more actually that I came out, the more that I was embraced by others, that I was loved by others, which allowed me more and more to love myself. And so the more that I studied, the more that I read, the more that I meditated, you know, the more that I sat in silence, the more that I, 
you know, worked on breathing, the more workshops that I attended, you know, it was a process. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like sort of in broad strokes, what you're talking about is diversifying some of the places that you get your self-esteem. Absolutely. So well said. Ha- having, you know, a focus on work, because that sounds like that's something that's important to you and, you know, money and success, like that is totally, that's important to me too, you know, right, right. <laughs> but then making sure that you had some other avenues to gather self-esteem, to, to, to connect with the community and be of service, but also to have folks tell you that you were okay. You know, like that's important. We, you know, we can act like if that um, success can um, substitute for that. And I really think it doesn't, you know, it really is important all our lives to have folks be like, you know, here's a pat on the back. You're doing all right. I mean, that's, we need that. We're human. I mean, we need ultimately, that. Ultimately, <laughs> we all just want to be loved. Exactly. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So now living in Palm Springs, where 40% of the population is LGBTQ, I mean, I'm, you know, in heaven. Well, what <laughs> is that like? I mean, you, and I don't know. You know, you said earlier that you had a a tougher relationship with your dad. Was that tough the whole time? Does that, I don't know if he's still uh, living. Yeah, he passed. Um, it It was just tough as a kid. My dad was a parole officer for the state of Minnesota, and he tended, he was good when we were kids. As we got older, he tended to treat us more like parolees than, you know, because Always do certain things, get in trouble, this, that, whatever. And um, so he just, you know, had a very negative attitude, was a very tough guy. An interesting piece of that, though, is at one point, my dad did the work as well. My dad used to hit my mom, that sort of thing. My dad put himself through college before getting that job, and that physical violence ended. But the verbal never did. But my dad was always trying to do the work as well. In fact, when I was just a teenager, my dad opened a motivational book and tape shop in Duluth, right down from his parole office. And he would sit in there for a couple hours every night and on the weekends and listen to, you know, tapes and read books. And, you know, at that point, I was required as a teenager to listen to these titans of the industry, Zig Ziglar, Earl Nightingale, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And then I had to write a book report once per week. So, at, you know, as an adult, I recognize that, you know, for for my father and really for all of us, we're all doing the best we can do with the skills we have. Right. So that's that's just where he was at. Well, it sounds like you also from those experiences, I mean, I when you were talking about um, the faith leader, Dr. Rick, was that his name? The, Dr. Roger. Dr. Roger, you were talking right. about, you mentioned, you used the word gentleness. And, you know, so that stands out to me, somebody who might have been raised in violent, with violence in their household, to find that in a, in somebody that has something to say about self-acceptance to find gentleness there seems, you know, like also as a person who's evolving and looking for 
Okay, so what are the things that I got as a child? So I got, you know, strictness and I got the ability to follow the tight schedule, I'm sure, that you were talking about earlier, you know, to find routine. And then what am I looking for um, as an older adult? And I'm looking for gentleness and acceptance. You know, we're just kind of trying to, even if we think that our parents are doing the best that they can, and yeah, everybody's generally doing the best that they can, the, the gaps that it leaves in us, it's admirable that you sought the ways, you know, to balance that out in time. Does that make oh, sense? Thank yes. Thank you. I, I think we're all it. trying to do that, you know, That's right. find the, That's right. find the balance that, um, for the things we may have missed. Right. I agree. You know, that's a, that's a big part of the journey. <laughs> so now that you are in Palm Springs and, and talk to me about where you're at right now, like both career wise, and then I'm going to ask you another couple of questions about just living where you live, but yeah, where are you career wise now? So let me tell you, uh, let me circle back a little bit. So at that Remax office in 1993, a lot of people don't know this, but when you walk into a real estate office, there are agents that take floor duty. So if you walk into an office just blindly asking about a property or thinking about buying a home, you're actually assigned to that person that's on floor. And the great agents typically don't take floor. They're out busy. They're, you know, they've been prospecting. They're out with buyers and sellers, that sort of thing. So you never know what you're going to get. So on this particular day, this gay male couple walked in and they were assigned to the floor agent. They were interested in buying a home. This is in Littleton, Colorado, a very conservative community. Even today, uh, right, just, just uh, half, a, half a mile from uh, Columbine High School. So yes. they were assigned to this floor agent and met with him. And after the couple left the office, there was all this ribbing going on in the back back room and all kinds of jokes and, you know, hey, Rudy, you're going to have fun with those boys and ah, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was just like, and I was just thinking something is not right about this process. I mean, what is what is going on here? So I recognized then, and I think it still even exists somewhat today, that there was this quiet homophobia in my industry, in the real estate industry. And so what I decided to do was to open a database of gay and lesbian realtors and at the time, the Advocate magazine was the only national-type publication. So I had a little classified ad in there, thinking about buying or selling a home, call me. So at that point, I started referring out a couple people. You know, they want to buy a home in Minneapolis. I would find a realtor there that was gay or lesbian or gay-friendly and refer them out, that sort of thing. So that has evolved today into... Uh, gayrealestate.com and we close almost a deal a day nationwide and the other thing we want to do I don't want to uh, gloss over it is the fact that I believe each one of us have a responsibility in whatever area we're in you know in real estate for real in, in the real estate 
industry. It was me. I recognized that I was successful in the industry, that I had some authority in the industry, that I had some influence in the industry, that I had some experience in the industry. And all of us have that somewhere in some place. So I thought, what could I do? And that's what I did. So I think all of us can look and say, what is it I could do where I'm at? And and what could I do to possibly make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that GayRealEstate.com has done for years and continues to do today is we give back. I recognize that, you know, it takes a village. And, it, you know, even today when our, when our uh, rights are threatened under the current administration, I mean, we cannot give up our guard. I mean, I, I think it's great that we're remembering Stonewall after 50 years. But our, the democracy for LGBTQ people in America is fragile, I mean, we can hop in our car in California, and as we drive across the United States, our rights change at every state line, which is totally unacceptable. So GayRealEstate.com actually financially supports 21 LGBTQ organizations monthly because I know real estate. I don't know how to do that other stuff, but Lambda Legal does, Out and Equal does, GLAD does. You know, the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association does. PFLAG does. Family Equality Council does. National Center for Transgender Equality does. So we give to those organizations and many others to help give back to the community as we continue to focus on the real estate arena. Well, fantastic job. I mean... (laughs) So well said. <laughs> you know, I I heard you say at the very beginning of when you were talking about why you started this, you, you were saying this really mattered then, and and still I think it does today. And I, I it's it's funny because sometimes I mean I don't know. I only live now, right? But sometimes I think that we sometimes I think we're being pressured by the larger straight forces in our culture okay. to, to do this sort of, um, and still today this matters. And I don't mean this as a criticism of, of you. I, I, I mean it like, yes, this still matters, you know? And I think I just, I heard you speaking and it was reminded of my like own self-consciousness sometimes in, in my field or, you know, what I hear from other folks where it's like, yeah, and it's still weird to be, you know, a lesbian competing with straight men for stage time or something like that. Right. And, you know, that we have to use the word still so often. Right. You know, when it's something like a house, it matters so much, um, you know, whether the person that you're working with or that's representing you to a seller or, you know, that's representing you to buyers or knows, you know, the neighborhood knows whether you'd be safe there. Of, co- of course, this matters. And I, I think I think it's like we're, we're taught to sort of even kind of diminish that this type of thing might matter. And, you know, when I got this email from you, I was I was literally like, yeah. Like, like, yes, this matters. You know, it matters. I think about it as a renter. You know, I think about it when I'm introducing myself to neighbors. I live in Los Angeles. I live in the east side of Los Angeles, which is a very um, progressive area. Right. And I think about this 
all the time. And not where I live now, but where I lived previously, and I, I just have moved within the last year. I right. was um I was called a dyke by a neighbor of mine on my street. Right. And it and this is here now, you know? And I so I just think um I think it does really matter. And the reason that I say this is because it's important to support folks who are out and doing these kinds of jobs because it, you know, if, if you continue to do your job, then like queer folks can continue to, to be supported. It's like, this is why it matters to sort of put your dollars back into queer owned businesses because Absolutely. it keeps us safe. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I want to know personally that the person that I'm potentially going to buy a home from that's going to earn a ten or $20,000 commission is not writing a check to Trump's re-election campaign. Now, and I'm, it's hard for me to say that because it sounds self-serving, right? But the chances of you using a realtor from gayrealestate.com are slim. You can find, you know, in cities where you live, cities where I live, many cities, city, like particularly here in Palm Springs, you can swing a cat and hit a, real, a gay realtor, you know? So there are plenty of them around. But there are plenty of cities where there are not, you know, there are more difficult to find. And circling back to the whole where we're at today compared to where we were at in 1991 when I became a residential realtor, my partner and I, before we became husbands, went to San Diego and looking at a townhome community. And I walked in, introduced myself. This is my partner, Merlin. Guy's like, oh, you guys are in business together? Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is so awkward. I mean, today, this is so awkward, you know? And the other important point is homeownership provides economic stability in our lives. Right now, about less than 50% of LGBTQ households are likely to own a home, which is less than the current national rate of 65% for heterosexual couples. You know, so I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we find is, you know, with rising rents, you know, it makes it almost impossible to save for a down payment. A recent survey that we did, though, showed that most people believe you need 20% down to buy a home, and you don't. There are FHA programs where you can buy a home for 3 to 5% down. So we're always trying to educate our community. We have a booklet that we've written, which is available on the website, and it's available in almost all of the LGBTQ centers across the country, and it's tips for the first-time LGBTQ house buyer. Um, so that's that's available. We do that sort of stuff. But Yeah, there's a lot more. There are so many... There are so many. How is it that we've been talking for 57 minutes? Because now there's so many, there are so many things to ask <laughs> about that. Like literally from everything from like the housing crisis to like subprime mortgage. I mean, we could really, right. I could sure. book you for another uh, 72 hours, but um, I feel very, very satisfied with the conversation we've had up until this point. Well, and, so do I. Uh, thank you again for your time. Yeah. And I want to ask you before I send you back to your day, um, to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel uh, like you can be who you are today. 
Dr. Roger, the Centers for Spiritual Living, who taught me to just imagine. Give yourself that slight possibility. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, I hope you don't burn up into a small ash heap in Palm Springs right now. <laughs> no, the what, hey, it's the, the 110 is gone. It's 100 degrees here today oh with my about God. 5% humidity. So you should come out here and we'll lay by the pool and continue our conversation. I always like to come when it's that full 110 because there's nobody in town. And right, I'm like, I've got true. the whole place. But yes, I will see you out in Palm Springs soon. And thanks again for your time today. Yeah, congratulations on your recent article in oh, the New York Times. I you. loved reading that. I, I I love everything you're doing, and I so appreciate your time today. Thanks to you and Jordan both. Yeah. Nice chatting with you. Yeah, it really was. You take care. 